As I was walking down the street one day, a man came up to me and asked me what the time that was on my watch. Yeah. And I said, does anybody really know what time it is? Does anyone really know what time it is? You're familiar with the lyric, at least some of you, the oldies in the crowd. That was Chicago, right? Does anybody really know what time it is? Well, according to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, they think they know what time it is. Greenwich Mean Time was determined to be the exact moment the sun crossed the Greenwich Meridian. And so we have Greenwich Mean Time, or GMT. You'll see it on various timestamps. GMT, Greenwich Mean Time. So for many years, people would set their clocks and watches according to Greenwich Mean Time. More recently, the time has been measured according to the electromagnetic oscillation of the electron of the Celsius-133 atom. Yep, you're going to learn something new every week. Amen? Praise the Lord. The Celsius-133 atom is how the oscillation in the electron and what's going on in that atom, the oscillation there is what they measure to determine atomic time and set the atomic clocks. So one second, what is a second? One second is defined as the time it takes for the frequency of the Celsius, Celsius uh, ces, I'm sorry, cesium-133 atom to oscillate 9,192,631,770 times. That's one second. Whoa, whoa, yeah, that's, that's it, man. So that's, I don't know what, I mean, that's, it's go, it's stuff, stuff's happening right now in the, in the atomic world. I mean, it's just busy down there. And uh, so it's wild. So that's one second. The U.S. government has an official atomic clock outside of Boulder, Colorado. It's funny, we were just talking about Boulder before the, before the, uh, the service tonight on a different topic. But anyways, in Boulder, Colorado, the U.S. government has an official atomic clock. And you can set your atomic you can, if you have an atomic clock, you can set your atomic clock to the official atomic clock that is at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. That's N-I-S-T, NIST, in Colorado, and you can synchronize to that uh, signal. Is, is there anyone interested tonight in, in setting your clocks according to the atomic clock? Now, here's what happened to me. In college, when I was in Bible college, I remember I had U.S. history, and I remember we had this professor, his name was Professor Alexander, and he was one of these guys that really was, you know, particular on time and starting on time and everybody being on time. And if you walked in literally one second after he started the class, he would just point to this table and you would have to sign the late sheet, right? I remember one day that... He, I was sitting there, the class started, he began to teach, and there was a kid that walked in after he had started, and he just pointed to the late sheet so as to point and direct him to signing that tardy sheet. And he said, the student objected, and he said, no, I'm not late, I'm on time. I set my watch according to the time that's given on the radio. 
And Professor Alexander looked at him and said, I set my clocks to the atomic clock, sign the tardy sheet. <laughs> Anyways, if you're interested in that, you can go to time.gov, www.time.gov, and you can get synchronized. So what time is it? What time is it? Does anyone really know what time it is? Let me submit to you tonight that there is, that there is someone who knows what time it is. He knows what time it is because he created time. Amen. When God created the universe, he created time. And the one thing that we need to understand as God's people is that God is a God of time and a God of timing. Let me say that again. We need to understand as God's people that God is a God of time and he's a God of timing. When you read and study the Bible from cover to cover, you will discover that God had, has a plan and he had a plan from the beginning, before the beginning. And he's working that plan to precision according to an exact calendar and exact timing. And what he did in this week of creation which in it is him bringing the earth into habitability and to be filled once again, is that he gave his chief creation a clock. Who's his chief creation? Well, that would be us, made in his image, mankind. And he gave us a clock, created a clock, he gave us a clock, and eventually a calendar based on that clock in which he would orchestrate his plan down to the very day. And we see this, the foundation of it, being given to us in day four of creation week. So tonight we're gonna look at least a little bit on day four of creation. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a look at day four of creation and see exactly what God revealed in it and how this relates to the timing of God's plan and his plan for our lives specifically and what he's doing in the world. And so we're going to read this section in Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. We're going to see the purpose of heaven's lights. The purpose of heaven's lights. Let's look at it in verse 14. It says this, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So right here in day four, what are we looking at? We're looking at really the purpose of heaven's lights, the purpose of heaven's lights. In the record of day four, we have here that God said, let there be lights in the firmament, let there be light in the firmament of the heavens. When you look at verse 14, the big question really is this. Is this the actual creation of the lights? And what are they? This verse tells us that these lights are for the earth. They're for light to be on the earth. So he, he made these lights to be light for the earth. Two great lights of 
uh, a myriad of lights, but two great lights specifically. He calls them great lights. Two great lights, the sun and the moon, and then lesser lights, the stars, and as the ancients called them, wandering stars. And so really, if we're going to answer the question of was this the exact moment, was day four the day that he created the lights, or was he assigning in day four and making possible the visibility of the, the lights in the heavens and assigning the purpose that they would have as, as time would march forward. So we need to go back to day one just for a second. And I want you to recall what we talked about on day one of creation. We talked about there in day one with God, he said, let light be. Remember, God said, let there be light and there was light, right? God commanded the light as we studied in day one. He commanded the light to penetrate the darkness of the waters that were over the earth and the great deep. Remember, in verse 2, we saw that there were waters covering the earth and there was, this, uh, there was this darkness, absolute darkness, on the surface of the, of the face of the earth and on the, over the great deep, right? And so what did God do in day one? He said, let there be light. Let there be light to the surface of the earth. Let light penetrate this darkness that is caused by the waters that are covering the deep and causing there to be darkness over the deep. So God commanded the light to penetrate the darkness. In that study, many of you will recall, I brought up a particular interpretation of what was happening on day one, and it was from a guy named Hugh Ross. Do you remember that? Hugh Ross, he's an astrophysicist, but he's also a Christian. He's an astrophysicist, but he's a believer. And he has presented a particular interpretation of creation week, and specifically day, day one and day four and what's happening. And we talked about it in that study on day one, that there was uh, darkness over the face of the deep, and letting there be light was letting light penetrate to the surface. So cutting through the darkness, he's allowing what atmosphere there was to then go from a complete uh, opaqueness to a translucence, to where the light could penetrate, but you, you couldn't uh, see anything beyond that. Kind of, remember we talked about kind of it being like an overcast day uh, type of a look. And, and so at the end of that day, we saw that there was this division of light and darkness and we see that on day one, that God is calling the division of that darkness, he's calling the light day, and he's calling the darkness night. So it seems to me that in day one, that there, there, there seems to be something to that particular interpretation because you have day and night already on day one. And if you go back to our study in verse two, the foundation of restoration and the, the interpretation with the gap theory that I presented, that you have all of the things that were created already created in verse 1. So, so in the beginning, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you, you, you have the, 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 the total picture created in verse 1, and then you have darkness. And the, remember, the, 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 the earth had become 
formless and void, and it was unfilled, and there was darkness over the face of the, the deep. And so then we see the Holy Spirit coming back to brood over the waters, and then the beginning of this new creation week, really this week of recreation, this week of restoration. So let me submit to you that you have all of these things created in verse 1. You have light allowed to be uh, penetrating through the waters that were covering the earth, going from an opacity to a translucent atmosphere. And let me submit to you on day four that you have the atmosphere going from a translucent to a transparent atmosphere. So now, not only do you see that there was before that that where there was this division of day and night because you had the sun and the moon, the two great lights, but now you have this completely transparent atmosphere to, to where now you can actually discern and see the, the physical lights that are in, in the heavens, in the firmament of the heavens. So light can be seen on earth's surface. The difference in light from the sun and moon can be seen, and thus day and night are defined for the reader and the hearer. Now on day four, earth's atmosphere, again, is becoming transparent, so that not only the light can be seen from earth, but also the sources of the various light can be seen as well. Now, people have raised the question, and perhaps you have, because there are a lot of questions. I mean, you know, I think in one of the studies, I, I, I read a portion of, of this from Creation Week, and I said, if you have a theory on this, we'll go ahead and stack it up on, on top of the pile with all the other theories on, on, what, on what's really happening here. And I, and I guess we can go through this and we can study it, and one day we'll be sitting with Jesus and we'll just say, well, just tell us exactly what you did, God. Just, just go ahead and just, you know, we got all time. We got eternity to just listen to this. Let's want to hear this, how it went down. One of the questions that has been raised um, and certainly raised by the skeptic when they look at Genesis 1 is if God made the grass and the plants and the trees on day three, how did they survive the night without the sun heating the earth? So if you don't have sun, if you don't have the sun until day four, if that's your interpretation, then how do the grass and the herbs and the, the fruiting trees that we discussed last week in day three, how did those make it through the night into day four without the heat of the sun? Now, a couple answers that could be given. Well, you had heat from the earth, right? Maybe there's heat coming up from the from the earth, that somehow just keeping those herbs and grasses and trees alive just long enough so God can, on day four, there you go, there's the sun, and that's how it's all going to work, and photosynthesis and the whole thing. No, let me submit to you that photosynthesis was happening on day three when you had a translucent atmosphere. And now you, on day four, now that translucent atmosphere is going to transparency, and now you're not only seeing the light, but you're now able to see the sources of the light. Um, just back on that point of if God didn't create the sun and the moon until day four, how did the plants and the, all that last and make it through the night? Um, you know, you could just simply say, I mean, it, it, you know, it's certainly plausible once you know that God is all-powerful, 
I would never disagree with someone that says, well, God just kind of covered the plants. You know how like we do in Florida when we know we're going to get a freeze and we break out the blankets and the little things and we, you know, cover the, you know, the travel, all of our tropical plants. And God just kind of covered, you know, everything and just kind of, we're going to just get you through till tomorrow because tomorrow I'm going to make the sun, you know. Let me, let me submit to you that you've got all that in, in verse 1. And now what God's doing is he's assigning for the reader in day 3. He's, he's doing the work of taking the atmosphere from a translucence to a transparency. And he's assigning the foundation and the purpose for heaven's lights. Now they seem to have... More than one purpose. When you look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the wandering stars, and when I say wandering stars, if, you can, if you're wondering what I mean by that, we call them planets. I'm, just, I'm going back to the old nomenclature. Will you allow me to do that? The wandering stars. And so we look at all these lights and we say, well, what are the purposes are these, of these lights? And we look at the verse once again because it's, there seems to be multiple purposes. He says in the end of verse 14, he says, Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. So there seems to be an aspect that they're for days and years. You have the two great lights, one to rule the day. And by rule, it doesn't mean... It's like a god, although many people worship the sun, many ancient cultures, the Babylonians, the Egyptians had their, their sun gods and the worship of the sun and all of it. So, you know, when God says, you know, that the sun, the two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night, and of course there's the moon god, right, in some of the ancient religions. Jericho was the house of the moon god. And, and then we have uh, Islam that really is the worship of Allah, which is the moon god, which is that same god that was worshipped at Jericho by the, by, the, by, the, by the pagans that had inhabited that area for 400 years as God allowed the sins of the Canaanites to reach their capacity and he brought in his people to cleanse the land, really. So you have two great lights, one to rule the day, one to rule the night, and that means to, you know, be that one that's giving the light for that particular portion of the day. The sun in the daytime, the moon at night, and of course it's at night that then we can see the stars, and of course there's that, those transitional periods where sometimes you can see the sun and the moon and some of the stars, and then you go into total night, and of course then you can really see the sun, the, star, the stars, depending upon where you are. If you're in the inner city, you're not going to see many stars, but go way out in the country, go to New Mexico or somewhere, and wow, it's incredible what you can see. So for days and years... For counting days and years. And so you have the day, one to rule the day, one to rule the night, the totality of the day, and then the years. 
and those were marked out according to that. And, 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 and you have this kind of timekeeping, if you will. But then what I want to talk to you is really the first purpose. And I think the order is important. I'm one of these people that believe that order is important in the Bible. And so when you see a list of things, a list of names, a list of things, a list of whatever, I think that there's an order to it on purpose. And so let's look at the first thing on the list. He says, let them be for signs, signs and seasons. But the first purpose, really, of heaven's lights is for signs, that they would be for signs, lights as signs. These lights become signs for God to the inhabitants of the earth, to the people of the earth. Now, you can get into the biology of it, and this is where, you know, even I get a little you know, kind of bogged down <laughs> in the, you know, I, I know, have I bogged you down already? Raise your hand. I bogged you. I've already bogged you down. Even I can get bogged down with some of it. And I understand with listening to a lot of it, I catch some of it. And I understand that there are certain animals that need to be able to see to the heavens. There's something about the lights in the heavens that biologically is, is kind of important. And don't ask me to explain that because I just look it up, okay? And, um, but it's true. It's true. But, but these lights are for signs, and in that sense, they become a voice for, God's, for God to earth's inhabitants, and let me say this, specifically to man, mankind, to men and women. And perhaps, uh, well, there's many verses of Scripture that you could look at to, to kind of talk about this, to discuss it, perhaps the most clear is the familiar one. In fact, we did a night on this in our Psalm series, but Psalms 19, Psalms 19, and I'm going to have it up on the screen. I'm going to actually read five verses of Psalm 19, and verse one, it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So the heavens uh, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, stay, stay there, stay back there. I told, yeah, I told, told Christian to stay with me, but I do want to comment a little bit on each one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Remember, we talked about the firmament, and the firmament was that that thing that divided the waters from the waters, the waters below, and those waters were on the surface, and there was waters above the firmament, and in the firmament, really, that here on day four, we see that. The sun and the moon and the stars are in the firmament. And so the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, what's in the firmament? It shows his handiwork. Verse 2. Not only does it show his handiwork, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Now, if you just read one, verse 1, you'd say, oh, well, the creation is incredible, and what the psalmist is talking about is that uh, all of the creation together just really shows the glory of God and how powerful he is and how an awesome creator he is and, and all that. But you see, it doesn't stop at verse 1. It goes on. Day unto day, these things, the firmament, what's in the firmament, it utters speech. And night unto night it reveals knowledge. Verse 3, 
There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. And in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. And so he set this tabernacle for the sun and the moon and the stars and they're in the firmament and they're, and they're uttering speech and their language is going out and they're revealing knowledge and, and there's, there's just stuff happening. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, verse 5, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. And so here the psalmist is actually talking about the course of the sun. But all this that is in the heavens and the firmament is, is declaring something. There's a message that is being revealed in the firmament of the heavens. The heavens utter speech. They reveal knowledge. And this is where a guy like you, Ross, says that, you know, God has two books. You know, people like to say, well, this is God's book, but the, he, he talks about the two books of God, that you have the creation, the, 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 the general revelation, and then you have the specific general revelation, and then, of course, then you have the word, became flesh, and dwelt among us. Amen? And so, um, so the heavens utter speech. They reveal knowledge. Certainly the heavens show forth the power and glory of God. As Paul asserts, he says the glory of God, the power of God is clearly evident, he says in verse 1 of Romans, or chapter 1. Read chapter 1, he talks all about how so much so that man is without excuse. People know that there's a God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1. They say, anybody who says there's no God, there's, there's a reason that they're suppressing that truth. And Paul says it's, un, it's unrighteousness that's causing them to take that position. They don't want to come before God with their sin. They don't want to. So they say, there's no God. But God says, no, you're, not, you're without excuse. Because the power and glory of God is clearly evident by the creation of what has been created. Amen? There's a creator. There's a grand designer. Now, what the ancients saw in the, heav in the heavens and the firmament these things that utter speech and declare knowledge, what the ancients saw in the stars in what is called the elliptic of the heavens. You have what's called the elliptic of the heavens, and there are group, what we call groups of stars. Actually, we call them constellations, right? And I, can, I should be a pro about talking about constellations because I live on Constellation Drive. Amen. <laughs> So let me talk to you a little bit about constellations tonight. Constellations. So in the elliptic, you have constellations. You have all kinds of constellations. But in the elliptic, which is this circle that goes across the earth, you have, there are specific constellations. And right there, it's probably coming to the top of your head because we unfortunately know these constellations by the term the zodiac, the zodiac. We, we know them by their kind of pagan uh, uh, ways, the pagan presentation of, what we, of what's been told to us is the zodiac. And, uh, but did you know that the Bible speaks of 
what, what's called the Zodiac, but it doesn't call it the Zodiac. It calls, it's another name for it in the Bible. Do you know the Zodiacs in the Bible? Under a different name. It's called the Matzeroth. The Matzeroth. So you have this elliptic and you have the constellations of what we know as the Zodiac, but it's called the Matzeroth. It's a primitive Hebrew word that actually talks about the way. Actually, even Zodiac actually talks about the way. It's a, it's a, it's a Sanskrit term, which means the way. Hebrew word Matzeroth carries also the sense of a message in the constellations. So the stars, these stars are set in constellations and there's this Matzeroth, the way, if you want to say it like that. Now, where is this in where is this mentioned in the Bible? Well, Job 38, Job 38:32, it says this. Here's we've brought this section up where God is talking to Job and he's giving him all kinds of questions. He's given him he's given him a science quiz, and this is one of the questions that God asks Job. He says, "Can you bring out the Matzeroth in its season?" In other words, here's what God is talking to Job and he's saying can you bring the procession of the, of the Matzeroth across the elliptic? No. <laughs> right? No. Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? He's actually, God is actually calling out another one of, specifically one of the constellations. God actually goes on, he talks about two other constellations, we won't get into that tonight, but he talks about, can you bind the Pleiades and the belt of Orion? The, 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 the Orion? Pleiades is a, is a small constellation set within a larger constellation, the constellation Taurus, and, and it's known to be seven stars, and I believe that I personally believe this, and you don't have to believe this, but I've done a lot of study on this. I believe that it's a picture hidden in, in, in the heart of, the, of the, 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 calf, the calf that bore the burden for us. It's, a, it's a, actually the seven sisters. It's the, it's the picture of the church hidden away in the heart of, of, the, of, the, of the, the bull. And uh, it, it's an incredible picture. But, uh, and if you want to know more about that, we, we can discuss that, but don't have time to get deep into it. But anyways, the Matzeroth is, are these 12 signs, really, the 12 constellations, and they are in this elliptic, or if you want to call it a circle, and they kind of are, there's knowledge, and they reveal, there's, there's, there's speech and revelation, and it doesn't have anything to do with what you read in the paper on the back page of the funny page with the horoscope. Doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the message that God placed in the heavens and the firmament and the stars and revealed even in the stars his complete plan of salvation and redemption and even his return to the earth as the, 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 the one that's going to come and rule and reign over the nations. And, it's, and, 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 and God is incredible because he, he put it all in the stars ahead of time. And the question really is when you look at the 12 signs, if you will, the 12 constellations, really the question is where do you break in to the, to the circle of the 12? Where do you start 
to, to go to look at this information. Where do you start? And there are many different schools of thought on that. But I believe the, the Egyptians actually did have this correct. Now, you know that different cultures, like everything they believed wasn't incorrect just because they were a pagan culture, right? If it's true, it's true because God made it to be true, right? He is, he is truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if it's true, if it's reality, he made it to be reality. So there are certain cultures that may be totally pagan, but, but they didn't get everything wrong, right? And in the Egyptian interpretation, you have this monument in Egypt that's called the Sphinx. And really, you have the Sphinx, which actually means joining. Uh, it actually means to bind closely together, the Sphinx. And it is, it is a composite of a woman and a lion. It's the, it's the head and the face of a woman and the body of a lion. You've seen the Sphinx. You've, anybody been to Egypt? Anybody here been to Egypt? Yeah. But I haven't, but I've seen the Sphinx, right? And, and so you have this head of, the, head of a woman and the body of a lion, and this is the, 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 the binding or the joining together. And so that's kind of where... It's joined together. And in the Egyptian kind of understanding that you actually began, you started with Virgo. You started with Virgo. Virgo, the virgin. That's what it means. Virgo, the word means in Latin, it means the virgin. In Hebrew, Bethula is the virgin. In Greek, Parthenos, the maid of virgin pureness. In Arabian, the pure virgin. Uh, in ancient Arabian, uh, the pure virgin. So you have the sign of Virgo, which is the virgin. And it is always depicted as a woman, a virgin woman. And sometimes uh, she... She, the virgin is also shown holding two things, holding an ear of corn in one hand and a branch in the other. So you have the woman holding an ear of corn and a branch. And so when you look into the message that is in the signs, in the constellations, really the message of redemption and the gospel message, how you would do this is you would actually, it was a story told according to the stars of the constellations and the names of the stars, starting with the brightest star of the constellation and working all the way down to the least bright. And then you had the three deacon signs of that constellation and you would do the same thing. It is believed that, that Adam and Seth and Enoch actually knew all this, and, and there was, they, they passed some of this down, um, and it, honestly, it's just became, it become lost on modern culture, um, and, and I believe kind of unfortunate, because there's a lot to that, and when I first discovered this, it just kind of spoke to me 
of not only did God do this thing where he wrote, he had men write a book and then he came into time and born of a virgin and, and grew up and was a man and was a perfect man and laid his life down, went to the cross, um, died, was buried, resurrected on the third day, the whole gospel. But he had actually foretold the whole thing in the stars in the creation. And to me, it's kind of like an incredible thing, really. But just touching on a couple of those things that you, you see with the woman. Of course, you have the woman, and really there are two ways you can go with that. One interpretation is that it's Mary. The other interpretation that it is Israel, who is many times in the Old Testament referred to as uh, the woman or the, even the bride of, of Yahweh, and, and so on and so forth. And so the woman has a branch in her right hand, ear corn in her left. The word branch... In the, New, in the Old Testament, there's a specific word. There are 20 Hebrew words translated branch, but only one of them, semek, is used exclusively of the Messiah. And so you have the branch in one hand and the ear of corn in the other. And remember when Jesus talked about the, the kernel of corn dying? And really it was this time where he was actually speaking of himself, that, he, that he, need, he had to die, and he used even this idea, this concept of the ear of corn, the, the kernel of corn dying and, and, and then bringing forth a greater harvest. And of course, Christ is the firstborn of the resurrection, and we are the second harvest, amen? We're the, the church is the second harvest because the church was born on Pentecost, which was the Feast of Weeks which is the ingathering, which, is, which was the prelude to that second harvest. So you have the semic, you have the branch, and you have the, the ear of corn. Now, there is a connection to the 12 signs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribe of Israel that is associated with Virgo is actually the tribe of Zebulun, which is the area where Nazareth is, which is where Mary was from and where she received the information from the angel that delivered the message to her that she would be the mother of Jesus. So it's an incredible, an incredible picture. There's much more that can be said, but I want to kind of move more towards the close tonight and specifically to an example in the Bible. There, now, there are few places you could go and look and say, okay, well, Charles, show us specifically what you're talking about where the constellation is a sign, okay? I'm still not on board, all right? Revelation 12, verse 1, let me show you. Revelation 12, verse 1, this is what John saw. He said, now a great sign appeared in the heaven. What was it? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And so we see here John seeing a sign in the heavens, and this is, of course, in the, in the Revelation. A great sign appeared in heaven. What was the sign? It was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. So she's clothed with the sun. The moon under her feet and over her head is a garland of 12 stars. 
So what could this be? It is common even in Roman Catholic art to represent Mary as standing on a crescent moon with 12 stars around her head. And some of that art was really trying to be a depiction of what John, the revelator, saw here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. But let me show you something from, and this is actually laid out in a program called Stellarium. And you can get this on your computer. You can go home. It's a free uh, piece of software. Go home and go to Stellarium. Just Google Stellarium. It'll take you to the site. And you can download the Mac version or the PC version, whatever. And you can go and you can, you can see all this, what's going on in the heavens. And go ahead and put that picture up of, of, the, Re- of the Revelation 12.1. Now... Probably um, what you see here is you see Virgo and the, Vir- the um, you see Virgo and you see um, the stars of Virgo. And then you see that at this particular time that sh- see where the sun is, she's clothed with the sun. The moon is at her feet. You see the, the crescent moon at her feet. So what what. John is showing here, John is seeing a sign in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon at her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So what is the garland of 12 stars? Well, you have the sign Leo, which is nine stars, but also within the constellation Leo at this particular time, you have three planets which were really wandering stars. So at this particular time, you actually have 12, a garland of 12 stars above her head, the woman clothed with the sun with the moon at her feet. And Jupiter is actually, if you looked at this spatially, Jupiter is literally between her legs. It, you know, it's, it, Jupiter is like the king planet, and this is actually depicting the birth of Christ. And uh, one of my favorite scholars named Michael Heiser has, you can go back on these programs and you can go back to any date in history and where this actual alignment has taken place was, believe it or not, September 11th, 3 BC. And for that reason, Heiser believes that that is the dating of the birth of Christ, September 11th. 3 BC. Wow. What, what, what an amazing thing. Now, there are those who are up on some of this that also know that there hasn't been this alignment since that time, but there is actually another alignment of this that is coming up this year. I don't know what it means. I'm not saying it's the, you know, the, the rapture, the second coming, or whatever it is, but September 23rd of this year, this alignment is actually going to happen again. And it could be just kind of the beginning of a, a, you know, something new that God wants to do in the church or whatever. Who who knows? Um, Sometimes it's easier to, you know, look, you know, thank God we can look back on some of this and we can, you know, you know, sometimes we were hard on some of the disciples because they didn't know what the parables meant. And we think we're smart because we know the parables meant because we've had 2,000 years worth of Christians trying to figure out what the par- parables meant. Amen. And we can look back on all this. But this 
is what you see there in, in that particular sign at that particular time. Now, John in the Revelation, he actually spells out exactly what you're seeing in Revelation 12, verse 5, and I'll have it on the screen. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to, the, to God and his throne. I'm going to bring all this home, and we'll bring it to a close. What is this telling us? He said that there's signs, that these things in the skies, in the heavens, in the firm of heavens are for signs. What it tells us is that God has done an incredible job communicating every which way that could possibly be communicated, even in putting it in the stars, in the heavens, in the lights in the sky. And it tells us what? That we have a Savior. It tells us that we have a Savior. It tells us that the child was born. It tells us that God came to earth. It tells us that he came to save. He accomplished the work of salvation. And he ascended back to God. After, the, after he completed the work, you wonder, like, well, man, it would have been nice for, for Jesus to kind of hang around a little bit longer, right? He said, no, but I've got to go away. It is to your benefit that I go away because I'm going to send the comforter to you, send the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, after he completed the entire work, he tells the disciples, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait in Jerusalem because the power of the Spirit's going to be poured out on you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. And they were still waiting for you know, the kingdom, to, you know, is now, now, Jesus, your kingdom's coming in? Now you're going to rule and reign? No, he was going up. And what happened? In Acts chapter 11, 1, verse 11, this is what it tells us. Two men, after Jesus ascended into the skies, it says two men clothed in white said this to the disciples. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So they're saying, Jesus, he, he ascended, but he's coming back. But what was the last thing that Jesus told the disciples before he ascended? Right before those two men said that to the disciples. It was three verses earlier in verse 8, Acts 1.8, Jesus said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what does this particular sign tell us? The sign in the sky, the sign that the, John the Revelator saw, the sign that foretold the birth of Christ that really was the birth of Christ that was all... Always there. It was always there. And then he's seeing this because he's looking back. He's seeing the sign, but he's looking back in retrospect because obviously if John is seeing that in 90, 95 AD, he's obviously looking back to the birth of Christ. Right? Jesus told the disciples right before he ascended, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And so I want to end this by saying that when we see the sign and we see everything that has been fulfilled, it tells me, here's what it tells me. It tells me that these things are true. It tells me that we do have a Savior and that there is a salvation that is available to every single person. And he left us with the power of his spirit. And he left us with a commission to go out into the world and to share this message. And this is an important message that needs to be continually shared until our dying breath or until Jesus take us to be with him. And so tonight, I want to encourage you to say, well, look what God did. He put us signs. He told us about signs in the heavens and that the things in the heavens were giving us signs. I want to present to you tonight that it's the gospel. It's the gospel. We need to be reminded again of the gospel and that we carry that message as his ambassadors to the world. Amen? So let us not receive the sign, the revelation, the message in the stars, in the book, and neglect it to deliver it to the people in our lives, the people that we come in contact with. So I want to encourage you. Wait on the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and allow God to use you as witnesses to him wherever you go.